The following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit broadwaychurch.com. Now we've learned that when it comes to the genre of the book of Revelation, that it's it's three things combined into one document. We learned it's an apocalyptic document. That means literally it's an unveiling. That's what the word revelation is, apocalypsis. I can't remember the exact pronunciation of the Greek word, but it's an apocalypse. Uh, literally an unveiling, a drawing back of the curtain, a revealing. That's what uh, the book of Revelation is. And apocalyptic documents at that time were documents that had uh, very symbolic language and, and all sorts of bizarre creatures, half human, half animal, even part machine. In the book of Daniel, there's a apocalyptic, and Ezekiel, apocalyptic documents. I think it's Ezekiel who has a, a creature with wheels and so on. So this is classic apocalyptic description where they're, creating, they're communicating a message using all sorts of visual expression. This was the, a time before film. And so these are almost like first century films, if you can think of it. They would spark the imagination. They're designed to create emotion, create feeling, is what they were designed to do. So numbers, colors, everything's symbolic in apocalyptic document. As well, though, it's not a pure apocalyptic document. It's also a prophetic document. It's a prophecy. So it's God speaking directly into the circumstances of his people. And it's also a letter it's a simple letter, meaning it's addressed to specific people in specific circumstances, at specific locations, at a specific time, a specific place, for a specific reason. And we have to factor all of that in when we're interpreting uh, the book of Revelation. So in this instance, it's a letter to seven churches under the geographical care and influence of John. Churches that were experiencing various levels of persecution, churches that were experiencing various sets of issues and sorts of issues, and churches that were responding to their circumstances in different ways, okay? And so we're looking first of all now at the unique messages to each of those seven unique churches because that's how John begins this letter. The first message we looked at a couple of weeks ago, Dr. Nelson highlighted uh, the message to the church in Ephesus. Last week, we looked at the second message, which was to the church in Smyrna. And uh, today, we're picking up by looking at the church in Pergamum. Now, we learned as well that there's sort of a repeating pattern that Jesus, John, and John use in the, this uh, unfolding or sharing of the messages to the churches. There's sort of a, a four-point a four pattern that Jesus follows. Uh, for the most part. There's a couple of exceptions, but for the most part, this four-point pattern. Uh, it begins with a description, with each letter to each church, a description of the character of Christ, and then a description of what Christ knows about that church, with a word of commendation for their strengths and a word of rebuke for their sins, of commission or omission. And then there's a call to repentance, and a warning of consequences if they don't repent. And then fourthly, there's a description of the reward that's promised them for their faithfulness and for their overcoming. Okay, so let's see how that pattern fits in the message to the church in Pergamum, which is chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. Now, before we get into it, let's get a sense of the historical context of Pergamum, because it will help with our understanding, perhaps, a bit of what Jesus is saying to that church. It was historically considered the greatest city of Asia. You say, oh, I thought Ephesus was, and, and Smyrna. Well, actually, they were all competing, but historically, Pergamum was considered the greatest city in Asia. It already had been the de facto capital for 400 years when John wrote uh, the book of Revelation. 
It served as the seat of the Aetolid Empire for centuries. The kings of the Aetolid Empire uh, were major players in this region of Asia Minor that entire time. But as Rome rose up, the last of the Aetolid kings saw the writing on the wall. So what he did was he handed over the keys to the city. He donated the city to Rome uh, as a way of avoiding battle, avoiding a lot of bloodshed, and just reading the writing on the wall. Rome is bigger and stronger than us, so I'll kind of ingratiate myself to them. Here, you can have our city. And Rome right away made it their seat of government in this newly formed province of Asia, as Rome called it. Now, according to uh, the Roman author, philosopher Pliny, it was the most impressive city in Asia. That's what he wrote. It was built around a cone-shaped hill, a thousand feet high. In fact, Pergamum is the Greek word for citadel, like a, a big thing on a hill. And the top of the citadel, at the top of the citadel of Pergamum, was home to a 200,000 volume library, as well as five major temples at the top of the citadel in this city. So they had the huge temple to Zeus at the top of the citadel, and they had a 40 foot high altar in the temple to Zeus. And Zeus was called the savior god to the Greeks. And then they had a temple to the goddess Athene, who was the daughter of Zeus, and she was called the, the goddess of victory and wisdom. And they had a temple to Dionysus, who was the son of Zeus, and he was called the god of wine and fertility. People like to worship uh, Dionysus for reasons you can imagine. And then there's the temple to Asclepios. Say that three times. I don't even know if I'm saying it right. Asclepios. He was the god of healing, and he was symbolized by a serpent. Now, if you get freaked out by serpents, plug your ears right now for the next 45 seconds. Because you know what they did in worshiping Asclepios? What they would do is, in this temple at the top of this hill, they would, it was a temple filled with snakes. And what you would do, because he was the god of healing, you'd go into that temple at night, and you'd lay and sleep on the floor hoping that a serpent would crawl across you and thereby maybe heal you. Yeah, that's freaky. And then they had a temple to the imperial cult, worshiping the, quote, divine Augustus and goddess Roma. So of all of the seven churches in Revelation, Pergamum is the most likely one to clash with the imperial cult of Caesar worship. Okay? Now, so, what's the specific message to the church in Pergamum? Well, we begin with a description of the character of Christ in verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Again, this is in context. Rome granted the proconsuls of each Roman city, the leaders of each city, the Roman representatives of each city, Rome granted them uh, something referred to as the right of the sword. This represented the power to execute someone at will. That's why Pilate had that ability. As the proconsul in Jerusalem, he had the, 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 the right of the sword. He had all the authority of Rome invested in him. He alone could decide who would live and who would die. Well, Jesus says, no, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. As your outline says, Christ is shown as one who has ultimate power and authority. You want to know who has power and authority? I do, Jesus says. I have the sharp, double-edged sword. I have ultimate power, ultimate authority. And then it's followed by a description of what Christ knows about the church. So first, 
following the pattern, there's a word of commendation. It says in verse 13, I know where you live. Now, this is unique. Listen to this. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. That's kind of freaky, isn't it? Well, what is this phrase where Satan has his throne and where Satan lives? We're not absolutely certain what he was referring to or to what he was referring, but it's possibly a reference to the huge altar to Zeus, the Savior God, that rose over the entire city, the big 40-foot altar. Or it could be to the, uh, a reference to the, to the uh, altar to Asclepius, the serpent god of healing, you know, and clearly with a, a reference to you know, Satan as a serpent and so on. Or it could be a reference to the city as being a center of Caesar worship as well. It could very possibly be a reference to this entire grouping of pagan temples and altars at the height and at the center of the city where he's saying, listen, I know this is a center of false worship, of pagan worship, of ugliness. It's where Satan has his throne overlooking this valley and this region. So it could be one or more or a combination of those. Another fascinating aspect of this, he says, uh, where uh, you did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. Now, that's the Greek word, martus, where we get our word, any guesses? Exactly, martyr. It's from that Greek word, martus. But but here's the thing. This, what you're reading here in Revelation, is the first instance in ancient literature where the word martus, which literally means, doesn't mean dying, it literally means an eyewitness. It's what martus means, it's an eyewitness. This is the first time in ancient literature where the word martus is associated with being killed because of your witness. So in other words, this is where the word martyr becomes associated with dying for your testimony, right here in Revelation. Never before is it associated with dying for your testimony. So before your eyes here in Revelation 2, you're seeing the beginning of the concept of a martyr, a witness who died because of their testimony or their eyewitness testimony. And then he refers to uh, Antipas, uh, my faithful witness Antipas. So Antipas was a martyr. He died for his testimony. We don't know a lot about this incident, but this is one of the earliest known martyrdoms. It's reported by some in history that Antipas was slowly roasted in a large brazen bowl during the reign of Domitian. We don't know for sure, but that is a report. As your outline says, so what Jesus is commending them for is, first of all, number one, they've remained faithful in the midst of external forces. In the midst of external forces, forces from the outside, persecution, Government persecution, religious persecution. You remained faithful. Even when Antipas was martyred, you still didn't give up your faith. And letter A, 1A, forces that would encourage them to renounce their faith in Christ. Said you, so you had external forces, forces that would encourage you to renounce your faith in Christ, but you didn't do it. And B, forces that rose to the level of physical persecution. So you had external forces that would try to get you to renounce your faith in Christ that rose to the level of physical persecution. He's saying, well done. You you didn't buckle under those. But then he has a word of rebuke to follow. Nevertheless, even though this is true, he says, I have a few things against you. 
There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. What's this all about? Well, as your outline says, they remained faithful in the midst of external forces, but apparently they were, some were succumbing to the pressure of existing internal forces. So you were faithful, you didn't buckle under external physical forces, but some of you are buckling and giving in and succumbing to the pressures of existing internal forces. What are we talking about here, the teaching of Balaam? Well, to understand what he's, to what he's alluding, you have to go back to the book of Numbers. So let's go back to Numbers chapter 25, if you have your Bible. And if you're here and you don't own a Bible, then just take the Bible of the person sitting beside you. That's now your Bible. It's yours to take with you. <laughs> Numbers chapter 25. It says, uh, while Israel was staying in Shittim, yes, every little child in Sunday school giggles at this verse, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before those gods. So Israel yoked or tied themselves to the Baal, which is the God, the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. And then turn right to Numbers 31, verse 16. Numbers 31, 16. It says, um, They were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and enticed the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord in the Peor incident, so that a plague struck the Lord's people. So what happened here was, Balaam advised the women of Moab that they could get the Israelite men to worship their pagan gods by enticing the Israelites with sex. So as your outline says, Balaam became a symbol for those who dilute the truth via compromise. They dilute or water down the truth via compromise. And John, Jesus, via John, seems to be saying that's been happening in Pergamum. External forces, you're great, but you are falling prey to people who are in the, like the spirit of Balaam. They're diluting the truth by trying to get you to compromise. And then he says, the teaching of the Nicolaitans. What's that? Well, again, scholars are uncertain of the specifics of this teaching, uh, which, although it appears to have Gnostic roots, Gnostic, it's from the Greek, Greek word for knowledge, it's a... Uh, Gnosticism is the whole idea that what you do with your body is meaningless. Only the spirit or the soul is valuable. That's Gnosticism. And you'll see, really, that's the root of a lot of Eastern teaching, Eastern philosophy, where the body is kind of bad or pointless, but it's the spirit or soul that, that is, is ideal. And so in Gnostic thinking, it's good. When you die, that's good because finally your spirit gets rid of this body and you can be this free spirit and be one with the universe or whatever. That's not biblical teaching. That's Gnosticism. And it's not biblical teaching. Um, biblical teaching is, is not that ideally you will be a, a, a disembodied spirit. Biblical teaching is that for a season, you will be a disembodied spirit, but ultimately, finally, you will get a resurrected, glorified body because part of being human is having a body. 
not being bodiless, but having a body. In fact, the Apostle Paul, remember, uh, likened being disembodied spirit to being naked. He said, but you want to be clothed, you don't want to be naked, okay? So, Balaam became a symbol for those who were diluting via compromise. And as your outline says, likely the philosophy, when it comes to the Nicolaitans, likely it's the philosophy that some Christ followers use to justify their sinful behavior. So we're not quite sure what exactly this teaching was, but it's likely a form of Gnosticism that they're using to justify, oh, it doesn't really matter what we do with our body, so we can indulge in, in worshiping in Zeus or worshiping in these temples, the, the, the god of fertility and wine and so on, because what we do with our bodies really isn't all that important. We're spiritual people, and it's only our spirits that really matter. So it was likely some form of this false teaching that they were allowing to creep into the church a bit. By the way, notice how two different churches in the same geographical region um, had two completely different responses and really opposite responses to this false teaching. Because remember, uh, as the pa- Pastor Mick taught us in Revelation 2 verse 6 when it comes to the church in Ephesus, he says... Um, You have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So it was also going on there in Ephesus, but the guys in Ephesus were hating it and they were rebuking it. But their problem was, even though they were standing up for the truth, they'd lost their first love. Here in Pergamum, they they were resisting um, physical persecution, but they were allowing this teaching of the Nicolaitans to infiltrate the church a bit. So thirdly, there's a call to repentance. He says in verse 16, Repent therefore, otherwise I will come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now notice what's happening here. The entire church is to repent for allowing the teaching to exist in their midst. So he says, Repent, otherwise I'll come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Okay, so he's calling the entire church to repent for them allowing this teaching to exist in their midst. So the entire church is to repent for the allowing to the teaching to exist, but as your outline says, but Christ will only do battle against the actual false teachers in their midst. So everyone's to repent for allowing it to exist, but he's, Christ will only come and do battle against the false teachers in their midst. Notice the pronouns. I will come to you and fight against them. See that? Excuse me. I will come to you and fight against them. And now fourthly, there's then the reward for faithfulness. He says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. So what's this? Well, first of all, the hidden manna is likely a reference to divine provision. It's likely a reference to divine provision. Um, Psalm... uh, 78 verse 24. Psalm 78 24 says this. Speaking about God, he rained down manna for the people to eat. He gave them the grain of heaven. That's what it's referred to as the grain of heaven. Of course, manna, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, when the Israelites left Egypt 
God provided them with food, manna. Now, manna is a Hebrew word, and it, it literally means, what is it? So God says, I'll provide you food every morning. And so the people woke up, they went out, and this dewy substance, like dough kind of, um, was all on the ground everywhere. And so they all walked around and went, manna, manna. They really, what is it? What is it? And so it was called, what is it? And, um, and so they ate this stuff until they actually were so sick of it, they asked for meat, and God sent them quail, and, and uh, they were grumbling, and so God gave them so much quail, it made them sick. He said, you want quail? I'll give you quail. And um, that's quite the story. You should read it. So he, but it became symbolic of, of divine provision. God miraculously provided them, and they were only to gather enough for that day. They were not to store it up, because by storing it up, they were implying they don't trust God to provide for them. So this manna was a symbol of divine provision. And then we read in John chapter 6, verse 38. John 6, 38. says, Jesus speaking, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. So Jesus says, I've come down. And then in John, uh, same chapter, 6, 51, Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. So Jesus refers to himself as the living bread, as the divine provision for every aspect of your life. So that's most likely what this hidden manna is referring to. Whoever has ears, I, I will give you some of the hidden manna. I will provide for you in every way in your life. And then there's this phrase at the end, a white stone with a new name written on it. What's that? This is a mystery to scholars. And there's a whole list of possible uh, answers as to what it might refer to. Let me give you three possible ones. And the third one that I'm about to give you is the one I put on your outline. First of all, so there's various options. Number one, it could be, and this isn't on your outline yet. The third one I'm about to give you is on your outline. It could be a reference to invitations or tickets to banquets and feasts in the first century. Because that's what you'd get. You'd get the little white stone. We get pieces of paper and so on. They would give little stones with perhaps an engraving on it. Okay? And so is Jesus saying, I have a specially engraved, pure and lasting invitation for you? Could be. Uh, again, remember, this is an apocalyptic letter. Colors are very symbolic. White is purity and righteousness and so on. Um, secondly, it could be a reference to first century courtroom proceedings because in first century courtrooms, members of the jury would vote with a white stone for acquittal or a black stone for guilty. Okay. So is Jesus saying, I will pronounce you not guilty with your new name engraved upon my ballot? Could be. Or as I've written on your outline, it could possibly be a cultural reference to an ancient friendship ceremony, an ancient friendship ceremony of exchanging halves of a white stone with a name etched on each half. So when you join them together, you know, it joins together with this one name. It could be a reference to that. We don't know for sure to what he was referring. So I'm going to open it up to questions, and normally we're rushing through questions, but now here's your chance to ask questions about maybe something in the past couple of weeks or today or my opinion of Donald Trump or anything like that. Yes, please. 
<laughs> Any questions about what we've learned today, first of all? John, I've never been so happy to see your hand. Yes, put it up. I love this question because it gives us an opportunity to dig into sort of a neat piece of historical background so we can understand what was going on. John's asked about the dynamic between Herod and Pilate and what went on there when Jesus was before them, where there's sort of a back and forth, coming to Pilate, then he sends them to Herod, then he's back to Pilate. What was going on there? This is, again, an example where if you understand the historical context, suddenly it comes alive. Um, so Palestine was being ruled by the Romans. But what the Romans did was they said, okay, we'll rule it all, but they were very wise. And they said, so, but we will give you, Jewish people, some local rulers. And Herod, you're a king, so we'll let you still rule over your people, but you report to us. So it's like we're delegating you as our authority, and uh, you report to us, and it's, it's, instead of having to send a whole bunch of Roman um, soldiers there, we'll just use your military and your... We, knight you as, as Roman soldiers and so on, but you act on our behalf. But different Herods, so there's more than one Herod, the brothers and so on, uh, over, you know, like they had provinces and they kind of divided up the region. If this, you can think of this as Palestine. They had different provinces. And so Pilate wanted to, if he could brush off, he didn't want to be in the middle of a Jewish skirmish. Okay. So he thought to himself, oh, you're from Galilee? Well, you're under... Herod, uh, that's his jurisdiction. And he just happens to be in Jerusalem. So you go to him. I'll let him work this out. So it's like any a boss who really doesn't want to deal with something and say, have you talked about this with, with, with your manager? No. Well, go to your manager and then bring it to me if, if you can. It should be settled there. So that's what he does. Send it to Herod. So he sends it to Herod. Herod um, deals with it. And Herod's a major idiot. And, and Herod is just, oh, I've heard about you, Jesus, and do some miracles for me, and, and just mindless fool. And uh, he sends them back to Pilate and says, I, you know, I, I don't know what to tell you. you know? they, they just play this game of back and forth. And Herod realizes, no, you know, I, I'm going to just push it back to you. Don't, don't dump this problem on me. I'm going to dump it back to you. And, uh, and then so it comes back to Pilate. And here's where the Jewish leaders were so uh, manipulative. Pilate had a reputation in Rome for being hard-nosed and for stirring things up. He'd go into the temple and he'd take the banner and so on and get the Jewish people all stirred up and rioting. And so he'd been warned by Caesar, if you ever do that again, you're in trouble. I will kick you to the curb and you'll be in such trouble. You go into Palestine and you keep things quiet. You keep things tamped down, okay? Don't stir it up. So Pilate's there dealing with Jesus, and here this is Jewish rebellion starting to come up, you know, and he's thinking, okay, I got to tamp this down because I've been warned. I've had my wrist slapped by Caesar, and he's watching me, and he's judging me, and I want to keep rising. Palestine was like the lowest. If you're the ambassador to Palestine, that's like the outskirts. That's, you've done something wrong. Okay, and so he wants to move his way up and become the ambassador to Canada someday, you know, or something. So the proconsul there. So he's really trying to be on his best behavior. So he's trying to tamp this down. And the Jewish leaders knew this. They knew that Pilate had to do everything to keep the peace. So that's why they were seeing 
saying, this Jesus, he's coming, and he's claiming to be the king of Jews, the king of the Jews. And, they, and so the Jews were saying, we have no king but Caesar. And no, that would make you gag. The Sanhedrin, they didn't worship Caesar. They didn't love Caesar. They hated Caesar. They hated everything about Caesar. But they're painting Pilate into a corner. Listen, we only worship Caesar, and he says that he's the king. And surely you're not going to let this man rule over Caesar or rise above Caesar. And, and so we're telling you, deal with him, kill him, because he's trying to raise an insurrection against Caesar. We love Caesar. Do we love Caesar more than you do, Pilate? Surely we don't. So Pilate knew the game they were playing, but he was painted into a corner. That's why even though he, he found no guilt to him, he said, okay, well, I'll, I'll whip him. I'll have him whipped. That'll satisfy you. No, we want him crucified. And we don't have the power to do it. Only you have the right of the sword. We don't. And if you don't kill him, we're going to complain to Caesar. Because there's somebody here who's claiming to be the king of the Jews above Caesar, and you, Pilate, aren't willing to deal with it. We're going to riot on behalf, of Caesar, on behalf of Caesar, Pilate's caught. And so he's got to, he, he makes the cowardly choice, a choice for his own career over truth. I find nothing wrong with him, but to keep you happy, I'll crucify him. So you see the ugliness and the cowardice there. Now, as to how Herod and Pilate became friends after that, I'm not sure of that dynamic. The Bible doesn't say. But somehow through this, they really didn't know each other before that, but they got together afterwards, and they probably was no big deal to either of them. Pilate probably would have said, yeah, thanks a lot, Herod, for sending me that problem. Like killing another Jewish person would have been nothing to either of those. Herod killed people. His, his ancestors killed his own people. He didn't care. They were both two power-hungry people, two politicians. They probably got together afterwards and said, well, that was kind of awkward, wasn't it? Yeah, well, thanks for sending me to you. Well, you had to kill him, so one of us had to do it. I'd rather have you do it. All right, okay, let's go have a drink. So that's how small-minded they were. That's a great question. It gives us a chance to kind of unpack what was really going on there. Over here, your Bible refers to little white stone to Romans 8.1. Yeah, so your Bible says, there, it takes you to Romans 8.1, therefore there's now no condemnation for, condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yeah, I don't know where that link is coming from. But it, it could be, again, I think it, the other examples we gave, what we're looking for is the cultural symbolism of that. I don't doubt that that's exactly what Jesus is talking about somehow. That I'm... I'm I'm releasing you from guilt and condemnation. Clearly, that's what he's talking about. But the question is, how does a white stone with a name on it tie to not being condemned? And that's what we're trying to do to give you some cultural examples of where that might be symbolic of no condemnation. Well, because the question is, when Pilate said, um, you know, he's washing his hands of it and um, saying, you know, this blood's not on me. And the Jewish leader said, let blood be upon us and our children. And so you're saying, how does that jive with what we just said about Caesar and his Rome, Rome's power and Pilate's power? Well, it just shows you of the, again, the cowardly, the coward, what's the word I'm looking for? Cowardness? That's not a word. Cowardicity? <laughs> Cowardliness? Cowardness? Is that a word? Okay, we'll go with that. Um, <laughs> what a scaredy cat um, Pilate was. Because <laughs> to stand up and say, you know, like, it's like a police officer saying, all right, listen, I know that you didn't um, commit this crime, but everybody around here wants me to put you in jail. So I'm the only one who has the authority to put you in jail, but I don't think you should be in jail. 
but because this mob around me insists on it, I want, you know, I wash my hands of this, go to jail. Well, you can wash all you want, but you know you're guilty. In fact, there is a tradition, I don't know if it's true or not, but I've read the tradition that Pilate for the rest of his life was always washing his hands because he could not remove the guilt from his conscience. But so he did this symbolically, but he is the only one who had the authority to do that. Um, and the Jewish people, they're saying, sure, we don't care. It was a flippant comment. You know, let his blood be on us and on our children. Sure, blame us if you want. But we, in fact, it was a proud moment for them. Yes, we will take um, credit for this. We'll take credit for, for, for holding the standard of Caesar high. Again, it's just tongue in cheek. Um, and say, sure, if, if you're too cowardly to do the right thing, Caesar, or Pilate, give us credit for doing the right thing. So it was a game. It was like a kabuki theater going on here between these two. And, um, but Pilate, as much as he wanted to symbolically do this, it was, only his, it was his signature required on that document. And so he could wash his hands, but the ink had his signature on it. Yes, Walter. Yeah, yeah, Walter was just alluding to that... Uh, with our scripture talks about how we have a new name uh, written down and, uh, you know, in Christ and so on, and he felt that the third option was probably the best option with that new name written down. Yeah, we don't know. I, I felt the same looking at all of them. I thought, well, that's the coolest one. It seemed like a, a very possible interpretation, but we don't know. And there's several others that aren't as good as those, I thought, but I thought I'd give you the top, what I thought were the top three. Other questions about what we've learned today? Next week is communion. It's communion Sunday. And let me remind you as well, let me say this, that in March of 2018, I'm going to be leading a tour to Israel and to Jordan. It's a 10-day tour, and it's going to be exciting. We're going to do Caesarea, um, all around the Galilee, uh, down into Jerusalem, down to the, you'll float in the dead, we'll float in the Dead Sea together. We'll do Masada. Uh, We'll go into Jordan and so on. Um, and uh, for a day. It's going to be a great trip um, to be in, a, in the synagogue in Capernaum together where Jesus based his ministry. Um, dip your toes in the Sea of Galilee. Um, it's going to be a great time. You'll even have a, a one or two free days in Jerusalem. Um, so the uh, lunch next Sunday before our annual general meeting, during that lunch, I'm going to do a brief 10-15 minutes explanation of the trip. I'll have brochures with the total cost for it and the dates and everything. And so if you want to check that out and come and join us, um, that'll be in March of 2018. Come next week and uh, we'll see how many folks are interested in coming to Israel. Okay? God bless you folks. Thanks for being here today. Thanks.